It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, the entire book of Hebrews focuses on the greatness of Jesus. And in the first three chapters, the author of Hebrews wants us to really focus in on specific aspects uh, of Jesus's greatness and, and looking at it in different ways. In chapter one, really the encouragement is to, to listen to Jesus and to listen to all that the Father has shared with us about Jesus. And uh, chapter one, verses one and two, we're told, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these days spoken to us by His Son. And so God has spoken to us by Jesus. He wants us to really just listen to Jesus and listen to all the things that the Father has told us about Jesus. In chapter 2, we're encouraged to see Jesus. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of uh, death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so chapter two, really, there's this, I want you to look, I want you to see Jesus, I want you to see how great he is, how much greater he is than the angels. And so we've been challenged to, to listen to Jesus and to see Jesus. And now as we come to chapter three, the author is going to give us another challenge, and that's the challenge to consider Jesus. Now, we listen to Jesus with our ears, we hear, we see Jesus with our eyes, but you know, we consider Jesus with our minds. This Greek word here that is translated consider that we're going to see in chapter 3 this morning means to focus your mind on something, to think about it in a way that considers it closely, observes it carefully, and does it attentively. And the goal of considering something like this is for the purpose of understanding what you're considering in a far deeper way. Now, Jesus uses the same Greek word in Luke uh, chapter 12 when he tells his disciples, consider the ravens. Now, I'm sure most of us, you know, we see ravens, we see birds all the time, but, but usually we don't take the time to really consider these birds. We don't uh, think about the birds very carefully. We don't consider the birds very closely. We don't give them our undivided attention. You know, we just kind of glance up and maybe we see them flying overhead and try to avoid anything they might be dropping on us or, you know, we listen to them singing, but we're not really considering them. And so Jesus says, you know what, I want you to consider the ravens. And then he points out some things that if you actually took the time to consider ravens that you could understand. And he tells us these things about the ravens that they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store their food in in storerooms or barns. But you know what? God feeds them. And then he takes that consideration of the ravens and he adds to that this important reality says, how much more valuable are you than the birds? 
Jesus' point is, hey, if God feeds the ravens, he's definitely going to feed you because guess what? You're more valuable than birds. Now, this is a wonderful truth about God, but you know what? The disciples would have missed it because they didn't take the time to consider ravens, to consider birds. You see, to focus your mind on something, to think about it, to consider it closely, to observe it carefully, to do it attentively, it takes time. It takes effort. And it doesn't happen automatically, especially when you're busy. You really got to make time to consider things. But if you do, it yields rich rewards, even if you're just considering birds. But here at the beginning of chapter 3, the author is telling us, you know what, I want you to consider something far greater than birds. I want you to consider Jesus. That's the challenge. Focus your mind on Jesus. Think about Jesus. Consider Him closely. Observe Him carefully. And do it attentively with the goal of understanding Jesus far deeper. Now the reality is, each and every day we consider things, we think about things, we, we give things our attention. Every day our minds are, are focused on things. But the question is, what is it that we're considering? What is it that we put our minds focused to? You know, what is it that we really spend time giving our attention? Is it Jesus? Is he part of that? I mean, obviously we have lots of things that, that kind of consume our thoughts, things that we, we think about, but, but is Jesus part of that on a daily basis? You see, whether or not we take the time to consider Jesus is going to have a huge impact, either positively if we are considering Jesus, or negatively if we're not. If you regularly consider and focus our mind on Jesus, you're going to be doing well. But when you stop considering Jesus, it brings problems to your life. And we clearly see that with the recipients of this letter. You know, that was one of their problems. They were considering something other than Jesus. They were focusing their mind on something, contemplating something, thinking deeply about something other than Jesus. And the thing that they were considering was Judaism. Oh, well, we're going to go back to that. We're going to go back to everything we had in Judaism, and we're going to leave Jesus. We're stopping considering Jesus and his greatness and all he has done for us. And now we're really kind of considering more Judaism. And that is where our mental focus, that is where our attention has gone. And it's brought big problems to these believers. And the same happens to us. You know, when we get our mind focused on things other than Jesus, when we kind of replace the thoughts of Jesus with the thoughts of other things, when we're, when we're constantly dwelling upon whatever it may be, it might not just be, you know, going back to, you know, something like Judaism, but there's a lot of things that consume our thoughts, and many of them aren't bad in and of themselves, but when we do that to the neglect of considering Jesus, when he's not someone on a daily basis we're really focusing on, we're going to have problems because of it. Alexander McLaren wrote this, to live in the continual contemplation of Jesus, our pattern and our Redeemer, is the secret of all Christian vitality and vigor. There he must not look as between half-open eyelids as men look upon some object in which they have little interest. But there must be the sharpened gaze of interested expectancy, believing that in him on whom we look there lie yet undiscovered depths and yet undreamed of powers. Which, we may, which may be communicated to us. We must sit before Him and be content to give time to the gaze if we are to get any good out of it. No one sees the beauty of a country 
who hurries through it in an express train. The root of weakness lies in the neglect of that solemn and indispensable duty to consider Jesus in patient contemplation and steadfast beholding. You know, I like how he brings up this analogy of you're not going to really take in the beauty of the country if you're just blowing past it in this express train and you kind of just see little glimpses of it as you're moving so fast. But, you know, we're in a culture that is so fast-paced and everything is just kind of, we don't take time often just to stop and to listen and to think and to contemplate. And there's so many things that are going on in our lives typically that many Christians are guilty of. You know what? We go for these long stretches of time where we're not really just stopping and considering and really thinking about Jesus and what he's done and allowing that to impact us. You know, there was an old park ranger from Yosemite National Park. He was still working in his 80s. He had literally spent his life exploring the beauty of Yosemite. And one day, a woman from the city hurriedly approached him and asked, you know, if you only have one hour to see Yosemite, what would you do? And this older gentleman, he repeats back to her what she just said, only one hour to see Yosemite? After a pause, he said, ma'am, if I only had one hour to see Yosemite, I'd go over to that log, sit down, and cry. You know, with something as beautiful as Yosemite, to just think of only spending an hour to try to absorb and take in its beauty and consider all that it has would be a travesty. But you know what? Jesus is far more beautiful, far more amazing than Yosemite. And when we only take short amount of time to consider him. What a travesty it is. You know, as a pastor, I've had people come, and I feel like that old man with this woman saying, you know, oh, you know, how little basically time can I spend? You know, I only have five minutes to give, you know, today or on a regular basis to Jesus. So, so what do you recommend in the Bible that I read? And it's like, you know, the problem isn't which book to read. The problem is that you're only willing to give five minutes to it. You know, why only to the greatest source of truth are you only willing to give five minutes of your day? You know, there are many important things that we could take time to consider about Jesus. We could just spend the rest of our time listing all the wonderful realities of things that we could consider. But the author of Hebrews, he has one main specific thing that he wants his readers to consider about Jesus. And that main thing is how much greater Jesus is than Moses. And as he wants to reveal the greatness of Jesus over Moses, there's really one main thing that he is seeking to uh, reveal to them that demonstrates Jesus is greater than Moses, and that is the fact that Jesus is greater in position than Moses. Now, when you look at Moses' life, he had an amazing position. He was the leader. He was the lawgiver. He was the mediator for the nation of Israel. I mean, he had a great position, but yet... The author of Hebrews wants us to understand the position that Jesus held, many of them, they're far superior, they're greater than the positions that Moses had. And the author of Hebrews is going to share with us four positions that Jesus possesses. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not dealing with everything, but he says, you know what? I can make the case with these four positions to show my readers that Jesus is greater than Moses. And those four positions are Jesus' position of apostle, high priest, the builder of all things, and the son of God and master of the house. 
So let's just take time to consider Jesus together this morning, to really focus our mind on Jesus, to think about Him, to observe Him carefully, with the goal of hopefully understanding Him in a deeper way. And I know that can be difficult. I know that listening to people teach, your mind can have, you know, just distractive things of stuff you have to accomplish or or things that you're going through or struggles that are happening. And it can be easy just to be distracted and miss what God wants to share with you this morning. And so my encouragement to you is that you would really consider Jesus. And I just want to take a moment just to ask the Lord to help us do that. That if you're being distracted right now, that God would help you to be able to focus in on his word. And let's just take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to really help us consider Jesus this morning. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege of your word, so grateful that we can have this time devoted to you, devoted to taking time to really focus our hearts and our minds on you and what your word tells us. And I just pray that you would remove anything that would distract us, anything that would hinder this time of receiving from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in 2005, there was a TV show called The Greatest American. And it really was, you know, this whole build up to, all right, you guys are going to get to vote and you're going to get to see who does America think is the greatest American. And millions of people cast their votes as to who they determined was the, the greatest American. And the top five people that got the most votes, number one on the list was Ronald Reagan, two, Abraham Lincoln, three, Martin Luther King, four, George Washington, and five, Benjamin Franklin. Now, if you were to vote of you know, who you think the greatest American was, maybe you know, they're not on this top five list. You might have voted for a different person, but hopefully you would vote for a person that you think has done the most for America, the person who you think has made the greatest impact on America. Now, if you were able to go back to the first century and you were able to put on your own uh, contest, and instead of who's the greatest American, it would be who is the greatest Israelite. And you go to the nation of Israel, and you speak to the millions of people there, and you ask them the question, who is the greatest Israelite? Who in all of your history is the one that you would say is greater than everyone else? And at the top of everybody's list is going to be one name, and that is Moses. Because Moses did the most for the nation of Israel, and he had the greatest impact on the nation of Israel. And I want to take a few moments, because we're going to see this contrast. We're going to see how Jesus is greater than Moses. But if you don't see the greatness of Moses, you miss out on how great Jesus is, because Jesus is even greater than Moses was. And so let's just think about Moses, because you can look at any person in Judaism, and nobody has done nearly as much for Judaism as God did through Moses. Moses' life started with God protecting him from Pharaoh's decree to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. And if you know the story, you know, he's placed in a basket. But not only does God protect him, but God enables him to grow up in Pharaoh's house. He becomes a prince of Egypt. Later on in Moses' life, God meets him through a burning bush. He calls him to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And then as Moses goes to do that, God performs great miracles through him, sends plagues by him, and ultimately uses him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness. And one of the greatest miracles that God does is that he parts the Red Sea. Moses takes his staff, 
puts it down. The Red Sea is parted. The nation of Israel is able to walk through that. The Egyptian army tries to follow, and God closes it in and defeats the Egyptian army. Now, what's really significant about Moses is that God spoke through Moses to the nation of Israel, but also Moses spoke to God on behalf of the nation of Israel, so he was the, the mediator between the two. But the most significant thing, I think, of all that you know, Jews would look at is when Moses was 40 days in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, he got to see the glory of God. It impacted him so much that literally his face glowed for a while afterwards. But during that time, God gave him some extremely important things. Gave him the Ten Commandments. Gave him the entire law, the Levitical system, plans for the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and all the things that go with it. Moses also wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books shaped the way that the Jewish people lived, how they ate, how they loved, how they worshipped, how they interacted with each other. It showed them God's law, showed them God's standard for living. Those are just some of the things that Moses did. And so when you look at, you know, even people like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah, you can take the list, but nobody in Judaism has had such an impact from generation to generation as Moses did because especially of the fact that God used him to bring the law and bring the sacrificial system and bring all the things that they still follow to this day. So that's why Moses was so highly esteemed by Judaism and people in Judaism. That's why they looked at him and said, you know what, he's the greatest person in Judaism. Now, if you want to show the greatness of Jesus over everything in Judaism, like the author of Hebrews does, here's a perfect person to pick. You know, we've seen that Jesus says, you know, pretty much over any prophet and over all the angels, but now it's like, you know, let's pick the guy that I know all of you have elevated to the point where you think he's top-notch, he's the greatest one. Well, I want to show you that Jesus is greater than him as well. And so that's what we're going to see this morning in the first six verses of chapter 3, that the author is wanting us to consider Jesus and how he is greater than Moses because of four positions that Jesus possesses that make him greater than Moses. Now, the first two positions we're going to see here in verse 1, which says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now notice here as we start chapter 3, the author of Hebrews calls his readers holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. And these are wonderful terms, wonderful terms to have them said about yourself. And they're based on what he told us back in chapter 2. If you remember last week, as we looked at in chapter 2, we saw that what Jesus did for us on the cross, it, it sanctified us, it made us holy, and that holiness then enabled us to be go from enemy of God to children of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Son of God, and it also enabled us to spend eternity in heaven with God. And so that's why the author of Hebrews calls these readers holy brethren, because that's what Jesus' death on the cross has done. It's made people holy and brothers of Christ, and it's also why he tells us that we are partakers of the heavenly calling, because that's what Jesus has given to us. He's given us an eternity in heaven. Now, after the author calls the readers by these wonderful terms that Jesus has made possible, he then challenges them, all right, I want you to consider 
Jesus. And right off the bat, he's like, there's two specific positions that Jesus possesses that I want you to consider. And he says this, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So the first two positions that the author wants us to consider about Jesus is the position of apostle and also the position of high priest. Now, I understand if you hear this and you're thinking, well, wait a second. Jesus, an apostle, that just seems confusing. I never associate those two things together. Typically, when people hear of the term apostle, the first thing they think of are the 12 apostles, the apostles that were disciples that Jesus made into apostles. And so oftentimes when people hear the term apostle, they actually don't think of what the word means. They think of the individuals who had that position or had that office. Now, it's important to understand that this Greek word translated apostle, uh, it's important to understand what it means, but it's also important to understand that, yes, Jesus does hold this position of apostle. And something else important to note is that most Greek words in the Bible are translated into English based on what they mean. For example, we're about to see that Moses is called the servant of God. And the Greek word that's used here, translated servant, uh, is therapon. It means servant. And so uh, the Greek word is translated based on its meaning. You know, when you read it, you don't see therapon, you see servant. It's translated based on its meaning so that we can understand what the word means. Now, the Greek word translated apostle, it's actually not translated into English based off of its meaning. The Greek word is actually apostolos. Okay, so all it's being done is it's being transliterated. So you have apostolos being transliterated into English, and the word is now apostle, but it hasn't given us the meaning. It's just transliterated. It hasn't actually translated it for us. And now the problem with that is, well, we don't know what the word actually means. You just see, okay, apostolos went to apostle. It still doesn't tell me what that is. Uh, It'd be like taking the Greek word therapon, which means servant, and transliterating it to something like therap, and to saying, hey, Moses was a therap. And we'd be like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what you're talking about because you didn't take the word and actually give us the translation. You just transliterated it for us. And this is where some confusion comes when people hear apostle. Well, I only associate that with a position that 12 guys had as opposed to, oh, apostle means this. And so I understand why Jesus fulfills that role. And so let me define the word for you so you can understand why it makes sense that Jesus and the apostles are apostles. The Greek word apostolos means one sent forth by another to represent them and accomplish their work. This was commonly used uh, for an ambassador because ambassadors were someone who were sent forth by a king, sent forth by an emperor to represent them and to accomplish the work that they gave them to do. Now, the meaning of this word, it fits well with the 12 apostles. Obviously, they were people that Jesus sent out sent out with a purpose to represent Jesus, sent out with a work that they were to accomplish for Jesus. But this word also greatly uh, represents Jesus himself because, hey, he was sent by the Father to represent the Father to us here on this earth. He was sent with a specific purpose to accomplish a specific task here for us as well. And so Jesus speaks about this apostle position that he and the apostles had in John 20, 21. He says this, So Jesus said to them again, 
peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, Jesus is referring here to this position of apostle that he has. You know, I was sent by the Father. I was sent from the throne in heaven to this earth to represent the Father and to finish the work the Father gave me to do. And like he sent me, I'm now making you apostles because I am now sending you to represent me and to go finish a work that I'm giving you to do. And so Jesus was definitely an apostle, and so were the disciples that he sent out. Now, I think it's interesting to note that another person who would fit under this meaning that actually doesn't have this title given to him in the Old Testament, but definitely fits with it, would be Moses, because Moses was definitely sent by God to represent God to the nation of Israel, and he was sent to accomplish a specific work that God gave him to do, which was to deliver and lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. So both Jesus and Moses have what you could call an apostle or, or ambassador role, but the question is, whose position would be greater? Since both of them have this similar role, both of them have been called by God to represent God, and you've been given a task by God to accomplish it, you know, whose role would be greater, Jesus's or Moses's? Well, the basis for how great your position of apostle or ambassador is would be based on a few things. First, it would be based on who sent you. So the greater the person is who sent you would mean the greater your position of apostleship would be. Second, it would be based off of what they sent you to do. So the greater the, the thing that you were sent to do would be make it greater uh, in you know, the fact that your position's greater because what you've been given is greater. And then third would be based off of you. Were you faithful to represent the one who sent you? And were you faithful to accomplish completely what you were sent to do? Because if you did both of those things, then that would make you greater as well. So when you look at Moses, you might start and say, well, wait a second. Well, they were both sent by the same God. God the Father sent Moses. God the Father sent Jesus. And some people might conclude, well, they're kind of equal in this first way that you would determine which position is greater. But really, there's no equality in that because Jesus is God. And guess what? He was a part of the decision-making of whether or not he would come and you know, represent God here on this earth, and he was a part of the decision-making of what he would accomplish here on this earth. Moses wasn't. Moses is not God. Moses was not part of the decision-making. Actually, when God told Moses what he wanted him to do, Moses resisted that, made excuses for why he shouldn't do it. And so in a very different type of thing where Jesus was a part of it, Jesus decided it, and then Jesus went and accomplished it, where Moses is not God, Moses didn't want to do it, but he finally you know, obeyed after making a bunch of excuses. So definitely in this first thing, Jesus wins out. The second basis to determine how great your position of apostle is, is based on what you were sent to do. Now, definitely, as we already noted, Moses was sent to do something amazing. You know, he is sent to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, to give them the law of God and the sacrificial system. And through that sacrificial system, that's going to be the way in which the nation of Israel is going to atone for their sin. And so, yeah, Moses is given something very, very significant to do. I would say more significant than anyone else in Judaism uh, that was given it. But then you look at, well, what was... Jesus given. Jesus was sent to deliver the entire world, not just the nation of Israel. To deliver the entire world from a much greater slavery than just physical slavery to Egypt, but he delivered the world from slavery to sin. 
And he came not to give the law, he came to fulfill the law. He was the sacrifice that the law points to. He did atone for our sins, something that Moses could never do. So who had the greater work to accomplish? Well, that one goes to Jesus as well. And the third basis to determine how great your position of apostle is, is based on how faithful are you to represent the one who sent you, and how faithful are you to accomplish the work you've been given by that person. Well, Moses, once again, this is why he's so impressive, he is mostly faithful in representing God. He is mostly faithful in accomplishing what he was given, but he did have times where he wasn't. There was a time when he misrepresented God. God tells him, I want you to speak to the rock and I'm going to send water for the nation of Israel to drink because they're thirsty. And Moses is mad at the Israelites, and so instead of speaking, he strikes it with the rod. And he represents God in a way that God wasn't. He represented God as angry when God wasn't angry. And there was a big consequence to this. This one lack of faithfulness in representing God cost Moses the ability to go in the promised land. God says, because you misrepresented me, you're not going in. And so he was mostly faithful, but not always faithful. He was mostly faithful in accomplishing what God gave him, but not completely faithful. But when you look at Jesus... Jesus was completely faithful in representing God. Completely faithful in accomplishing what God had given him to do. So once again, when you compare the two, Jesus is greater as well. So in this position of an apostle, Jesus is definitely greater than Moses. And the second position the author of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus is high priest. Now, he's mentioned this a couple times, and each time I have not spoken about it for a purpose that they're going to get, uh, the author's going to get real detailed. We're going to spend a lot of time in the chapters that are coming about Jesus as high priest, and so I'm just going to wait till we get into all those details as opposed to kind of speaking about it now and then just reiterating everything when we get there. So this is a really important position, something that Hebrews tells us about that really no other book of the Bible really gets into the details of Jesus in this role. And it's a wonderful one. And before we get to the end of the book, you're going to understand it really well. But we're going to wait till the author goes in detail before we do. But I do want to highlight something as you know the author brings this up. And one of the things is, as I just noted, yeah, you could say that Moses fits you know uh, the, the qualifications, I guess you could say, for apostle, because, you know, as we noted, he was sent by God to represent God. He had a task that it was given to him. But you know what? Moses was not high priest. That is not a position he was ever given. His brother Aaron was given the role of high priest, but Moses was not given that role. And so we don't actually need to look into all the details about the role of high priest to recognize here is a position that Jesus possesses that Moses does not which once again shows the greatness of Jesus because Jesus is not only an apostle, he's also high priest. And Moses didn't have both of those positions to bless the nation of Israel through. And so we see another way in which Jesus is greater than Moses. Now the next two positions that Jesus possesses that make him greater than Moses are in verses 2 through 6, which says this, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who builds the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, 
for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, something important to note here is the author wants to help his readers understand that Jesus is greater than Moses. He does not do it in a way that uh, disparages Moses. He doesn't try to do, I mean, we see in politics now, you know, instead of, whenever you try to elevate yourself, it's always to de-elevate the other guy. You want to talk highly about yourself, you always talk negatively about the other person, and that's typically how we do it. If I want to show I'm greater than you, I'm not only going to talk about how I am greater, I'm also going to talk about all these ways that kind of demean and bring you down, but the author doesn't do that. He realizes his readers have a high esteem and respect for Moses, and he says, you know what, that's great, and you should. I'm going to show you that Moses is a great man, worthy of respect. He did wonderful things. He's faithful. He's a faithful servant. And he doesn't say anything to kind of be negative about Moses. He just says, yeah, he is great. And I would agree, he's the greatest person that has come through Judaism. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is even greater. So he's not trying to detract from Moses. He just wants you to see Jesus is even greater than the great man Moses. And we see this in verse 2 as the author compares the faithfulness of Jesus to God with the faithfulness of Moses to God. He says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Here he knows his readers recognize Moses was faithful in everything that God gave him to do except maybe one or two times, but he doesn't even bring that up. He's like, hey, Moses was a faithful servant to God, and Jesus was also faithful, just like Moses was. And so he kind of starts with that premise of, yeah, Moses is faithful, Jesus is also faithful, and now that he started with that, he's like, but I got to let you guys know that Jesus is actually even more faithful, that Jesus is even greater in faithfulness than even Moses was, and there's two reasons why Jesus' faithfulness is greater than Moses' faithfulness, and they both have to do with positions that Jesus possesses. The first reason, or the first greater position that Jesus has is seen in verse 3 and 4. We're told, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. Jesus, Moses, they're both faithful. But here's what you got to understand. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And then the author gives an illustration to help the readers then and us today understand why Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And the illustration is based on the position that Jesus has as the builder of all things. The illustration the author uses is this. He who builds the house has more honor than the house itself. You know, a house only exists because there's someone who's the builder, someone who's the designer, the craftsman, the person who is able to put this house together. That's the only reason that the house Exists. So one who builds the house should have definitely more honor than the house that he built, because without the builder, there's no house. And so if you look at the house, you say, oh, that's so amazing. Oh, who cares about the builder? Well, guess what? The amazing house doesn't exist without the builder. 
You know, that's like saying, oh, look at that painting that's so amazing. Who cares about the painter? Or, or, or the, the music is so amazing, but who cares about the composer? No, without the painter and without the composer and without the builder, these things that you might see as so amazing, they don't exist. And that's why there's more honor given to the one who built it, who composed it, who painted it, who made it, because they're the ones who made it possible. Now, when the author is speaking about uh, a house, something important to note there is really speaking about a group of people. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as God's house. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the household of God. And this is something that's important to note, and we'll see here the author even brings this up that is speaking about people. But Moses, he was given authority to lead the household of God, speaking of the nation of Israel. But that was something that God gave to him to do. Now, Moses wasn't the one who built the house. He wasn't the one who created the nation of Israel. Actually, Jesus was the one who did that. So the point the author is trying to make is that Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is the builder of everything, which includes the house of Israel, the nation of Israel. And Moses, he's just a member of that house. He's one of the members of the nation of Israel that Jesus built. So yeah, Moses, he is faithful. He was faithful in leading the nation of Israel. But Jesus is counted of more worthy and more glory than Moses because Jesus created the house of Israel, which includes Moses. So without Jesus, guess what? There would be no Moses. There would be no nation of Israel. There'd be no person we could say, oh, I can count Moses worthy. Well, Moses wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Jesus. So the first reason why Jesus' faithfulness is greater than Moses' faithfulness is because the position that Jesus has as the builder of all things. It makes him greater than Moses and deserving of more glory because he built everything and Moses didn't. The second reason why Jesus' faithfulness is greater than Moses' faithfulness is seen in verses 5 and 6. It says this, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is the Son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So once again, the author is speaking about the faithfulness of Moses and what he was given by God to do. But the author also points out the position of Moses in his faithfulness versus the position of Jesus in his faithfulness. And so he's kind of been saying over and over, hey, both guys were faithful. Moses was faithful in what God gave him. Jesus was faithful in what God gave him. But there's a difference, and the difference is in the position in which they held and where they were faithful. Now, notice Moses' position. Yeah, he was really faithful, but notice we're told Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. So the position that Moses had in being faithful to God was the position of a servant in the house of God. So he didn't build the house, as we already noted. He was just a servant in the house. And as a servant, he did a great job. He's a wonderful example to us. We are servants of God, and we can look to Moses and say, you know, I, I would love at the end of my life to be able to say, I was as faithful to God as a servant as Moses was. He did a great job. The author's not trying to take anything away from him in that, but he is trying to reveal his position is of a servant, and now he's going to contrast that with the position of Jesus, a position that is far greater than the position of a servant. Jesus 
In verse 6, we're told that he is the son over his own house. So notice the difference. Moses, he's a servant in a house that someone else built. Jesus is the son over his own house. So he's not only the son of the father who built the house, he is the master. That's speaking of over the house. He's the master of the house. So Moses is the servant in the house. Jesus is the son who's the master over the house. And it doesn't take much for anyone to look at that and say, well, which position's greater? Well, the son who's the master is greater than the servant of the master. Moses did a great job being faithful as a servant, but Jesus is greater because not only is he the master, but he's also the son of God. And both of those things, both of those positions, reveal that he is greater than Moses. So the author's not wanting us to sit back and say, wow, Moses wasn't faithful. No, Moses was super faithful, but Jesus is even greater. Because Jesus was not only faithful, but the positions that he had are far greater than the positions that Moses had. So the author of Hebrew wants his readers and us to consider Jesus, consider the greatness of Jesus in these four positions that he possesses as apostle, the one who was sent forth to represent God, the one who was given a task to accomplish and that Jesus represented him perfectly and accomplished all that he was given, in the position as high priest, as we'll look at in several weeks, and we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled that and still fulfills that in such an amazing way for us, as the builder of all things, versus the one who was built in Moses, and then the Son of God and Master of the house versus the servant of the house. Now, I think it's important to remember that these initial readers, they're being tempted to leave Jesus, tempted to go back to Judaism. And one of the reasons for that is because they're being persecuted. Following Jesus where they were was bringing persecution to their life. Many of them were being killed, and there were all sorts of other persecution that was coming because of following Jesus. And they thought, you know what? We had it better in the sense that we weren't being persecuted when we were just following Judaism before we transitioned over to following Jesus. And so let's, maybe we should just go back to that. So the author wants them to see, hey, the greatest person in Judaism, Moses, guess what? Jesus is greater. You don't want to leave Jesus to go to something lesser, but there's also something else, another encouragement that we see here at the end of verse 6 that the author is wanting to bring to these people who are being tempted to abandon Jesus, to leave Jesus, that you know what? They're not beyond help, and they're not beyond hope. You see, after telling them that Jesus was the Son of God over his own house, notice what he says at the end of verse 6, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The author wants the recipients of this letter to know, hey, you are a part of the house of Christ. When you put your trust into him, you became part of that house. And you're struggling with staying firm to the end. You're struggling with continuing to live for Jesus. And I get it. You're being persecuted and it's hard. And you're thinking about, you know what, maybe I should walk away from this because I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know if I can continue on. I don't know if I can watch more people that I love being killed for following Jesus. And the author wants to encourage them, hey, you're of this house. And I want to encourage you to hold fast to the end. I want you to stay holding to Jesus. Do not walk away. Do not go back to Judaism. Do not leave the greatest thing of all for something lesser. Hold fast to him, firm to the end, 
Because that is what is going to be best to help you through the persecution that you face. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Jesus is supremely worthy of our perpetual consideration from all points of view. And the more you consider Him, the more you may. For there is a depth and breadth about His wondrous personality, His work, His office, well worthy of our deepest thought and admiring worship. Holy brothers, sharers in the heavenly calling, we may well consider Him. If you think little of your leader, you will live but poor lives. Consider Him. Often think of Him. Try to copy Him. With such a leader, what manner of people ought we to be? One of the best things that you and I can do is daily consider Jesus. To focus our minds on Jesus, to think about Jesus, to consider Jesus closely, to observe Him carefully, to do it attentively with the goal of every day, I want to grow deeper in my knowledge of Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. There's a poem that was written by an anonymous person titled, Consider Him. And I want to close this morning just reading this poem to you. And I think it's a great encouragement that no matter what you're going through, you need to consider Jesus says this, When the storm is raging high, when the tempest rends the sky, when my eyes with tears are dim, then my soul consider Him. When my plans are in the dust, when my dearest hopes are crushed, when is past each foolish whim, then my soul consider Him. When with dearest friends I part, when deep sorrow fills my heart, when pain racks each weary limb, then my soul consider Him. When I track my weary way, when fresh trials come each day, when my faith and hope are dim, then my soul consider Him. Clouds or sunshine, dark or bright, evening shades or morning light, when my cup flows o'er the brim, then my soul consider Him. So my encouragement to myself, my encouragement to you this week, is take time every day to consider Jesus, to look into His Word, to learn more about who He is, and just watch as you do that, how it encourages you, how it strengthens you, how it helps you to become more like Him, and that it helps you to deal with all the stuff you're facing, all the things that are coming in 2020, the best thing that we can do is take time daily to consider Jesus. Get your eyes off all these things. Get them on Jesus and watch how your perspective changes and watch how you're blessed by it. Let's pray. Father, we are just so amazed by who you are, by all that you've done for us. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us a greater desire to consider you. We have such great desires to, to watch the newest Marvel movie or, or something else that comes out, and, and we have this, this longing to see it. Lord, let that longing be for you and your word. 
Lord, that we would recognize that you are greater than anything else and that anything else that we have this, this desire for would be lessened and that you would be the greatest desire of our heart, the greatest desire of our mind. Lord, that you would occupy our thoughts every day. And if that is not where we're at right now, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal to us what's hindering that. That you would show to us what we are focused on, what we are living for, what we are ultimately worshiping with our lives, Lord. And if it's not you, I just pray that you would reveal why, that you would help us be willing to repent and turn away and put you back to the place that you deserve. The priority of our thoughts, the priority of our lives, the priority of our time. Lord, if we haven't been considering you, that we would get back to it starting today. And that you would just bless our life as we take time to deepen our understanding of who you are to become more like you. We are grateful, Lord, that you are patient. We are grateful that you are merciful. We are grateful that when we neglect you, and even when we are faithless, you are still faithful. Because you can't deny yourself. You can't deny who you are. We are so thankful that you are that kind of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be your faithful servants, to follow in your example, and to become more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.